Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Wendy Naylor. Wendy is one of the editors of a new volume in the Lexham Press edition of the Collected Works in Public Theology of Abraham Kuyper. Wendy, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. It's great for us to have you on the show. Before we begin talking about this really interesting collection of essays you put together, on education. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am an American. I uh, I was converted to Christianity when I was 18 out of a very kind of liberal Christianity, which uh, in which we did not really believe um, that Christ needed to die for us. It was very much that Christ was our example. And in fact, we, uh, as a youth, we, we, my family did not go to church. So I was converted to evangelicalism and grew by God's grace. I read Schaefer and I was fascinated by the idea that God was not only the God of, of personal salvation, but that he also was redeeming and would redeem the entire universe. Uh, from there, I, I became a, a professional teacher of young children. I taught in uh, several schools, including a Catholic school and public schools. And then I ended up in Youth with a Mission, which is a charismatic mission that works all over the world, but they also uh, have a university on the islands of Hawaii. And, um, of course, my friends all said, yeah, you're a missionary in Hawaii. You know, you're really roughing it. But um, I taught school there and was also being trained in um, basically unlearning a lot of what I had received in my college training about education and relearning the um, the scriptural idea that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and all the implications that has. And of course, you know, this has challenged educators for a long time, but I was getting started. Uh, from there, I went to the Netherlands, where I helped to establish two schools, two Christian schools. One was um, uh, an English-speaking school for the children of missionaries. We had about, and we had missionaries come through from all of all parts of the world. So, um, if we had about forty students, uh, after that, I was principal and teacher. Um, after that, we I helped to set up a Dutch-speaking school, which was really our goal, to bless the nation and not just our missionaries. And that became the first evangelical school uh, to be recognized in the Netherlands. There were lots of other Christian schools. There were Calvinist schools and Lutheran schools and, of course, Roman Catholic schools. 
Um, but there, there were no uh, evangelical schools per se. So that was exciting. And I was, I, I experienced firsthand the, the idea and the reality of a Christian school being able to hold to its own uh, worldview and faith and beliefs while also receiving lots of money from the state. The, all of our teachers were uh, paid by the state. Um, the teachers, eat, I, I remember my pre, a preschool teacher who had taught in my English speaking school, and she um, and we had, you know, we'd had to save and save to get some Montessori um, materials, and all she had to do was check it off, <laughs> and that that's what she wanted, and she got it. So. Uh, I I did wonder whether over time the um the the sheer number of regulations on the school would have a negative impact, and that is still a question that I have. Um, from there, I came back to the states to get a master's in education at the University of Chicago, and that was in um, uh, reflective teacher training. I. I should, I should mention that I had also received invitations to speak in many different parts of the world on, within our mission um, on Christian education. So we had schools, um, a lot of schools in Europe, but these were schools that were not English-speaking. They were Finnish and Spanish and Norwegian, etc. So I taught the teachers about um, Christian worldview at that that. that Gradually, I learned more, and that was was a result of me having discovered Abraham Kuyper, and to a lesser extent, uh, Doyvier. But it was Kuyper that kind of spoke to my heart, um, and that is his that is that was his gift that he could speak not only to minds but to hearts as well about the glories of God and the calling of scientists to unearth the the riches of God's treasure and that the that had implications for how we educate people not only in the content of that but also in the uh, the process of educating of um Seeking God for his wisdom, crying out to God for his wisdom. Um, from there, I got married to my surprise and delight. And I married an engineer. So um, we're, we're different personalities, but that's often how God does it. And, and I, I just, I went on to get a PhD from the University of Chicago. And this was challenging for me. Um, no one, not even in the divinity school, I found no one who really knew and understood Abraham Kuyper. So I was largely on my own, um, but accountable as well to a history professor um, uh, and two people within the divinity school. And of course, I was getting my degree in the education department, but my... my um, the people who helped me were in other departments, which I found interesting. I could also have gone 
philosophy, because that was my specialty, philosophy of education. After getting that degree, by now, I, my career, in a sense, was behind me, and I had a family, so I did things a little bit topsy-turvy. So I, I stayed home. I felt called to stay home and raise our daughter, and um, I was involved in helping to set up a classical Christian school on the south side of Chicago. So if, if for those of your listeners who understand, the south side of Chicago is um, is largely African American, and is that's where that's where we live. Um, and it, it it has not the public schools are not known for their quality. So we set up a, a classical Christian school that attracted quite a few African Americans as well as whites and Hispanics and so forth. And it was uh, unapologetically reformed. So uh, you didn't have to be reformed to come to the school, but you needed to understand the ref- the basic tenets of the reformed Christian faith and then agree to have your child taught that way. Um that was a, a, a real blessing. At one point, I became an acting uh, principal, and this is while I'm raising my daughter, so it got kind of uh, crazy for a while. Um, but I was acting principal for one year while we looked for another principal who could take over. And after that, I stepped away. And at a certain point, I didn't feel the school could adequately meet the needs of my daughter, so I homeschooled her for three years after which we sent her to a private um, junior high and high school before going on to university. So that's a little bit about me. I Since since I got my degree, I have had the privilege of publishing in several in, uh, chapters in several books, most of them public, secular publishers, and um, but the topic being uh, – global the phenomenon of christian education in in a world perspective so i my focus was the netherlands so i talked to i have one article on the history of what happened in the netherlands and the influence of, of abraham kuyper in the kind of educational liberty that that developed um and several other articles this is my first edited book and I, I, of course, co-edited that, but I am really excited to bring the work of Abraham Kuyper to an English-speaking audience because uh, we've had a few books. That, of course, the, uh, for anyone who knows Kuyper, the Stone Lectures that he gave at Princeton University, um, that is a major work um, that has been appreciated by English audiences and in the past, it was appreciated by Dutch audiences. Currently, Abraham Kuyper um, is not appreciated a lot outside of reform circles. So, a lot of uh, within the Netherlands, I mean. Um, so, yeah. So I'm I'm glad to be publishing, and it gives me my daughter's a, is away now, but it gives me an opportunity to reflect and to. Uh, right. You know, I wrote an introduction and an afterword to this current volume. 
Wendy, that's that's very helpful. Um, can you tell us now as we approach the book more directly, who was Abraham Cowper and, and why does he matter? Good question. Very good question. Um, Abraham Kuyper was a statesman. Um, he, he founded institutions that changed the, the Dutch society all the way up to the level of the Constitution. So he started out um, as a pastor. And there's an interesting story of how um, of his he had uh, two levels of conversions. And I kind of am interested in that because I had that as well. The one was uh, conversion basically to um, to deism and to not just deism, but to an evangelical faith that was not reformed. And then the second conversion was to a, a reformed faith that uh, placed his trust entirely in God for his salvation and knew that it began with God and ended with God. So he became, that second conversion happened while he was a pastor himself in, in a small church and, um, Oh, there's just so many stories. I'll have to give an overview, though. But so he then became in, very involved in uh, the social life of the Netherlands. He was a pastor in Utrecht and also in Amsterdam, and then decided to lay that uh, uh, lay that down in order to become um, to run for parliament and to stand in parliament, uh, which he did. He, he served in Parliament for several years um, and was involved with other reformed, they were all men at this time, um, men who were exploring uh, how can we resist the, the overpowering influence of the French Revolution um, upon du the Dutch society. Uh, even before Napoleon invaded and set up a very rationalistic and centralized educational system in the Netherlands, but even before then, a lot of educators were drawn to the French model of uh, seeking to liberate children from superstitions, i.e. all religion, and to... Um, train them in the use of their reason to, in order to serve the state in, in solving society's problems. So basically they believed that reason was autonomous, that reason did not have a foundation itself, but that it, by virtue of consistency, i.e. teaching logic and um, the scientific method, that reason would deliver people from the kind of things that had held back society, such as, uh, well, superstitions and also Christianity in particular, because it was Christianity that was resisting this kind of mindset. Um, and so these reform men, including Kuiper, got together and decided to, to form a political party. 
because they they had discovered that Christians up until this time had voted conservative. And, of course, at that time it was called the Liberal Party, but it was basically a conservative party. And what they found is that the Liberal Party, as well as the Radical Party, were basically both rooted in this idea of man's autonomy and and the autonomy of reason, rather than in God's uh, sovereignty and man's dependence upon God for wisdom and for shalom in society as well as in our personal lives. So they formed this party, and in 1879, actually 78, but then also in 79, they published a huge party platform that dealt with the major issues of the day from a distinctly reformed standpoint. So there were issues, obviously education was an issue because it was, it was at a 19th, early 19th century, mid to late 19th century. They were, they were fine. They were setting up a national education system. It was not yet established. It was still in the process. Um, there were no laws yet to force people to send their children to school, but that, that was a, in the process of coming. And so that was one issue, but there were also many other issues of, of, um, the structure of government and the, uh, universities. Um, what kind of use of universities would be allowed to grant degrees? And, um, in the early days, it was not allowed in the Netherlands. I'm talking about the 1830s and 40s and before. It was not allowed to set up an in, a school independent of the state and the national church. That was considered Christian enough. And um, so basically it was the, uh, the state uh, using the church to enforce a certain worldview. However, that worldview was not distinctly Christian. Kuyper's, Kuyper and his cohorts um, needed to uh, to communicate to their um, to their public, to their people, that the institutions that that had in former decades and former centuries had been a reliable. Um, Christian influence in society had basically been taken over, if you will, by, uh, and this is not conspiracy thinking, but, but by a mindset, a gradual mindset that, that eventually resulted in what he called modernism as distinct from modernity. Modernism was again, a kind of a combination of German pantheism, you know, that God is uh, in all things and that, it, that a sense of wonder is important and, and basically a very much of a thorough worldview combined with French rationalism. Again, they, they didn't mix well, but every locality in the Netherlands was different. So he, he and his cohorts... Uh, 
wrote this uh, political platform in order to communicate with his people, who were often uh, not the Christians at that time, both Roman Catholic and and Protestant, well, they, they formed about two-thirds of the electorate, excuse me, two-thirds of the population were only a very small number of those who had the, who had suffrage, uh, because they were not wealthy. There was, a, um, at that time, there was, there was a, um, a restriction on the vote. So you had to own a certain amount of property. And uh, because many Christians did not, they were laborers and they were uh, working at lower levels of society. Um, there was, for, for a myriad of reasons, the Netherlands did not enter into the Industrial Revolution as quickly as other nations did. So there was a lot of poverty in the second half of the, well, in, the entire 19th century, and it was only gradually that 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 changed. And I am going way off your question. Kuiper then became a leader in much the way that Martin Luther King was the was the voice and the leader that uh, people associate with the civil rights movement. But he was also um, so he became that person, and he he eventually uh, stepped back from Parliament and became um, and helped to do, he formed the university. He he wrote six days a week. He wrote um, an editorial in the newspaper that he had a daily a Christian newspaper that he had founded out of Rotterdam, and he wrote six articles a week for that. And then he wrote also in another, um, a weekly publication, and that was more of a, um, a theological and uh, pietistic um, leadership of, of his people. So uh, he was basically in, extremely effective, not only in leading his people and forming a coalition with the Roman Catholics, but also in communicating with uh, those in the conservative party, the, the the liberal party at that time it was called, who wanted freedom, but did not understand that a stranglehold on the uh, on the kind of worldview that was being taught in the public schools and even in the Dutch Reformed Church that that would not lead to liberty. So he was able uh, eventually, and again, it's always he and his colleagues, but eventually to um, work towards a constitutional amendment that passed, um, granting all parents in the Netherlands the recognizing a human right to send their children to a quality school that taught the worldview of the home. So the values and the beliefs were consistent between home and school. And then, and they, if they could not afford such a school, they, they would be granted, um, 
the schools would be provided for them. Uh, so, again, this was radically different. Um, all, all European nations were struggling with the question of how to serve a religiously diverse population, um, which, again, before the 19th century, there were not that many religiously diverse uh, countries because uh, there were more national churches. If you were English, of course, England was an exception, I should say. But um, if you were Irish, you were Roman Catholic. If you were Dutch, um, before before the 19th century, there was a Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, and so now came this question of how to how to acknowledge how to offer quality education, which the French rationalists, um, they had learned certain important things about that. They certainly had raised the level of education in the Netherlands, but they had done it in a very abstract way. And they certainly had done it with a goal to, to uh, basically rescue the children of religious parents from the superstitions into which they were born. Now, one of the th one of the things, Wendy, that this um, series does is it collects Cowper's work across a huge range of subjects, doesn't it? Education being one of those, but there's also a volume on or a couple of volumes in business, politics, economics, and so on. And I suppose p p part of Cowper's genius was that he was able to see a theological paradigm that could map across all of these spheres of, of, of modern life. He calls that sphere sovereignty. You address this idea of sphere sovereignty in your introduction. But what is sphere sovereignty and how did Cowper use it then to connect and also distinguish these different aspects of, of Dutch life? Uh, Kuiper believed that God had not only created the natural world and mankind and societies, but, but, but also the structure of society. So um, with time, there were different spheres of society that had gradually uh, emerged as distinct spheres. The church was one sphere. The family was another sphere. Uh, business um, and economics was another sphere. The state was a very distinct sphere. Um, and arts and entertainment, you could call another sphere. I said definitely Kuiper has a fascinating article on the arts in the, his Stone Lectures. And uh, let me think, there, there were other spheres as well. But basically he said each of these spheres is rooted not in the state and not even in religion. Well, let me put that differently. Not in the church, that's it. So there was a time, of course, in Europe when the Roman Catholic Church believed that the best thing to do for society was to spread her wings wide and bring these spheres under the protection of the church. And at that time, that, that was a one, that was an excellent service to mankind. Um, and, and, allowed for a level of development 
that that ha- had not been seen before. So, but now uh, the church was not. The church needed to retreat to its own sphere and allow these, and the state also needed to retreat to its own sphere, so that uh, the state could develop. Um, the state was called to serve God by by providing justice and the rule of law in a society and enforcing enforcing the rule of law. Um, it was very important to acknowledge that law was based on God's law, as Martin Luther King also wrote from the Birmingham jail. That there are there are certain laws that that have come down through common law and before that in, in the Bible that are a universal universal laws up, upon which we base our laws. So that was, you know, in a nutshell, some of his thoughts on the role of the state. The role of the state was not to, um, it was to support all other spheres, but not to manage them, not to, um, not to interfere and intrude into their running because uh, arts and the, the government was not qualified to to manage the arts. It just it would produce a very stilted, a very political. And we saw some of that coming out of the the uh, Soviet Union. The kind of art that was that served the state. It was not free. It was not allowed to develop on its own roots. And these were roots that God had placed in society. So the the same way with the family. When I was in Czechoslovakia, right after, um, that was in 1990, I I was told that this was the first May Day in which people did not have to come to the parade according to the state's delineation. So before that time, second graders were all there, you know, with their with their uniforms and 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 their, they were they were individuals in the second grade serving the state. And then of course the parents would be in their workplace and this was the first it was very regimented. It was a May Day, but it wasn't a true parade because it was all uh, constricted and abstractly uh, organized uh, uh, according to the state's idea of what was right. So it was chaos. I mean, it, it was wonderful. And people, there were signs all over. I know I'm getting off, off topic, but there were signs all over that said everything, anything that is not forbidden is allowed. And so it was wonderful to participate in that. But that um, an- another sphere would be the family, of course, that the uh, families had um, a God-given duty and right uh, to raise their children with good morals and in the faith that they were convinced was true, and then also to provide them with an excellent education. And the, the surprising thing about this, Wendy, I suppose from the perspective of many of our listeners, is that Kuiper's very, very strong Calvinism actually was the foundation for his vision of an extremely pluralistic society. That's right. That's right. He was adamant that 
that the um, constitutional liberties that were recognized in the in the Constitution, similar to American Constitution, I don't know, I don't know about the um, European nations as much, but uh, free speech, uh, freedom of religion, that these were these had come to fruition, to recognition as a fruit of Calvinism. And at one point, he, he quotes from Parliament um, at the, in the time of Cromwell, and uh, we would be forgiven for thinking that Cromwell wanted to impose uh, Protestantism on all of the nation, but actually... They 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 wanted to bring about um, religious liberty. So the idea was because mankind is not can cannot convert a man. It is not in the hands of man, the heart of people, individually and as a group. That. The heart of people is not in the hands of men. It is in the hands of God. God elects. God calls. God saves. And so, again, this was radically different from the idea that we are called to bring people to the true faith. And if the state can help us, well, that's wonderful. We will use the state and we will use the schools and uh, we will produce a people that are of a certain religion. And Kuiper said, no, that, that, that is not the way it works. And um, the, Calvinist, the Calvinists that um, prior to Kuiper, at the time of the Reformation, they didn't, they, Calvin himself did not initially grasp the full amount of religious liberty that was the um the result of his of of biblical faith but um those who came after him were able to to uh understand that better so for instance um he believed that he fought hard to get the um i think it was i can't remember the article but there was a certain article in the heidelberg catechism that called upon the state that to uh to ensure the true religion was honored and upheld by the nation and he had that he and others of course um voted to have that article taken out of the heidelberg catechism with the understanding that true faith is not the role of government. Government is not qualified. It is not equipped. It is not called to establish faith. That That is in God's hands, and he uses his church to preach the gospel. And, um, of course, he uses Christian schools as well. He, he can use every facet of society to work in people's hearts, but ultimately... It's up to God and not the state. So that is his connection between liberty and Calvinism. Now, as as you've assembled the essays, um, essays taken from throughout Cowper's life on the theme of education into this volume, 
What, who do you hope will read this volume and what do you hope its impact might be? Well, I, I would love for um, everyday Christians, evangelicals, Roman Catholics, wherever, you know, Christians, people who believe in Jesus for salvation, um, to read this and to hopefully uh, have their understanding grow deeper of the of the relationship of the Bible and of Christianity to every sphere of life. So um, I would also hope that graduate students would read this in order to, there's a wonderful essay in this volume, and again, there's 12 volumes, so they're all wonderful, but I'm talking about the education volume. There's an excellent article a chapter called Bound to the Word, and he's addressing the issue of what exactly does it mean for the university to be connected to the Bible? And there were two, there were, there were two um, ideas about that at the time. One was to, to, to base the university findings directly on the Bible. The other one was to base university uh, scholarship on the reformed uh, principle. So what Kuiper understood is that there, within Christianity and within mere Christianity, meaning true Christianity, they, different worldviews have developed. And um, they have a very different understanding of mankind and uh, the relationship of mankind to the world, uh, whether we're called to uh, retreat and, and form a separate society that will be a light to the world, or whether we're called to draw alongside the world as Luther, the Lutherans in Germany um, often believe that, that, that there was a God-ordained leader for the state, and then there was a God-ordained leader for the for the church, and they were separate. There were two kingdoms. Kuiper's view was that there were not two kingdoms. There was one kingdom, and it was the entire universe, the kingdom of God, and that um, he was working to redeem that, and he wanted to use his people in every sphere of society, not just in the church, not just in the state, but in every sphere, he wanted Christians to go in and influence, but not just with a view of influence, but with a view of creating according to God's glory, according to God's reality, and that this would be um, this would pr produce a shalom in in many spheres of society. I, I don't know if I've answered your question. question. No, it's great. It's great. Well, Wendy, listen, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Before we wind up our, our conversation just now, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment or what you might like to do next? Uh, and thank you for asking. I have another book inside me that I would write myself. I, I don't know if it'll come to fruition because I'm, I'm in my 60s now, but... Um, I would just like to write a book about Christian education and drawing on the wisdom of the scriptures as understood by Kuiper. So um, 
getting more into the pedagogy. He was adamant that sound pedagogy requires harmony between the school and the home. Um, And there's some interesting connections with Dewey because Dewey talked about a primary experience and secondary experience. And primary experience was just the first, the experience that we have. Secondary experience is understanding that and filtering that through um, a layer of theory. And he put religion in this as a, as a, as a, a secondary experience. What Kuiper believed is that primary experience is itself very religious. All people, um, their, the human experience cannot be understood. It is, is essentially and fundamentally religious, um, in that it is, um, it arises from worship. Worship will turn our hearts in different directions and, uh, according to that, to the worship that we, that has filled our heart from that foundation, secondary experience can arise that we understand and that we can articulate that experience. So, he even went so far as to say that it was child abuse to take a child, um, well, to force a family to send their children to a school that had was committed to um, inculcating principles that were directly opposite of the parents. So um, I'd like to explore that more, and I've had the I've had the privilege of traveling around the world. And have seen a lot. So, um, yeah, that's what I'd like. Not so much an academic work, but a, um, a work of reflection and hopefully encouragement for Christian schools. Well, that sounds fascinating. Well, Wendy, listen, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, working with your co-editor to put this book together. And thanks for coming on to the show to talk about it. Thank you and take thank care. You. You're so welcome. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.